1: Welcome, everyone, to our SF in SF event night with uh, our authors tonight, not the film night, although that's a separate but wonderful event. Uh, My name's Rena Weissman. Uh, Some of you already know and have heard for the last three and a half years that I am with Variety Children's Charity of Northern California in whose room uh, preview room theater you're sitting in and we are a children's charity here in san francisco we're an international charity more to the point this just happens to be the san francisco tent Um, i've been with variety for about nine years now as a board member and they very graciously agreed to share this room with my community which is the science fiction fantasy literary community and i in turn can turn around and share it with all of you by helping to host these wonderful events in conjunction with Tachyon Publications and Borderlands Books, Rick Cleffel here as our moderator tonight and our podcaster, and a host of other volunteers without whom we wouldn't be able to put anything nearly approaching this on for everybody in the Bay Area. Um, I'd also like to point out that, uh, uh, just jumping ahead a little bit, next month, August 22nd, we'll be featuring Elizabeth Lynn and Marta Randall as our guests. And that will be a really fabulous evening as well. So we hope to see you all back then. And without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to Rick Cleffel. Yes.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another fine night of SFNSF science fiction in San Francisco. Tonight, our two authors are Cage Baker, and she's going to be reading from Hotel Under the Sand, and this is her newest book from Tachyon Publications. You can buy this book and many others by her out. From Borderlands out in the lobby, and we also have Madeline Robbins, and this is her latest book. Am I correct? no actually, oh. there's one after that. Oh, there's one left af-
2: There are two. Petty treason is the second one.
0: Okay, then petty treason it should hopefully be out there, and <laughs> it, is, it is. So, and we'll be hearing from her right after we hear uh, uh, Cage. <laughs> we the format is each author reads, and then we have a little break, and then we get back and. Talk about uh, writing and fiction and all this great stuff we're about to hear. So, without further ado, Cage.
2: Okay. This is a book that was written for an eight year old child. It is aimed at eight year old children, so please invoke your inner eight year old. Um, it was written for a child who had to deal with an awful lot of bad, bad stuff. Um, Grown ups are frequently, you know, behave like idiots, and they have psychiatrists and they have, you know, action groups and crisis support lines they can call. A child is pretty much expected to deal with something on their own because when you're little people assume, well, she won't remember, she'll get over it. And I was writing this for a child who was going through something difficult and sending it to her a chapter at a time. And I will read the first three chapters of The Hotel Under the Sand. And the, dedica- the dedication is, for Emma Rose, so blessed with brains, heart, and courage, she needs no wizard. Cleverness and bravery are absolutely necessary for good adventures. Emma was a little girl, both clever and brave, and destined, so you might think, to do well in any adventure that came her way. But the first adventure Emma had was dreadful. One day a storm came and swept away everything that Emma had and everything that Emma knew. When it had done all that, it swept away Emma too. It might have been a storm with black winds, with thunder and lightning and rising waves. It might have been a storm with terrible anger and policemen coming to the door, and strangers, hospitals, courtrooms and nightmares. It might have been a storm with soldiers and fire and hiding in cellars listening to shooting overhead. There are many different kinds of storms. But Emma faced the storm that swept over her and found a way to save herself. She kept her head above water and kept swimming even when she was tired. She didn't think about swimming, pardon me, she didn't think about all the things that might be in the dark. She didn't drift feeling sorry for herself. When she spotted a floating tree, she pushed herself to swim faster and soon she caught up to it and she was able to climb aboard. She blew along on the angry water, clinging to a tree trunk, driven by the pitiless wind. But she held tight and kept her wits about her. After a long time, she saw land far away on the horizon. As she sailed closer, Emma saw a golden wilderness of sand dunes, hills, and mountains of bright sand. The wind kicked up plumes of it, whirling it into the sky. Soon she heard breakers crashing on the shore and knew it was time to watch out. Whump! The tree trunk ran aground and Emma scrambled free and crawled out of the waves on her hands and knees. The warm sand above the tide line felt nice, so she lay down there and rested a while. Then she stood up and looked around her. There was nothing to see but the dunes and the ocean. Emma found herself all alone with nothing but the dress she had on in a wilderness of shifting sands. She wanted to cry, but Emma knew that if she started crying now for everyone and everything she had lost, she would never be able to stop crying. So she dusted herself off instead and started walking away down the beach to explore. She had no idea where she was, but knew it must be close to where people lived, or had once lived, because she could see a double line of old pier pilings, worn down so far they looked like black broken teeth, stretching out across the low tide flat. And as she looked up and down the beach in both directions, In both directions, she could see pieces of shipwrecks littering the beach for miles. Emma decided to climb up a sand dune. The dunes were quite high, much taller than they had looked from the open sea, and she thought that if she could look in every direction she might see a town. She climbed and climbed wading in the hot sand up a ripple-sided mountain. When she got to the top, all she could see stretching away forever under the noonday sun were more rippled mountains and steep sliding valleys of sand. These aren't just sand dunes, said Emma to herself. These are the dunes. She had once owned a book with pictures of the dunes. It had said that the dunes were very far away on a wild and lonely seacoast, very hard to find. Very little was known about them. Was there water in the dunes? Looking at the bright, dry sand, Emma realized that she was very, very thirsty. As she stood up there in the wind and the sun, wondering what she ought to do, Emma heard a tiny peeping sound. It was just barely there under the hiss of the wind and the roar of the sea, but it was there. Balancing carefully along the spine of the dune, she walked in the direction from which she supposed the sound was coming. The sound grew clearer, and Emma recognized it for the singing of frogs. "'Where there are frogs, there must be water,' thought Emma. She hurried along the dune, and the sound got louder. She came over the top of the sand hill and saw below her a green place where a creek went winding down to the sea. Cattails grew there and beech myrtles and dune grass and blackberry brambles. Emma slid down the high face of the dune and ran to the creek's edge. The peeping of the frogs stopped all at once, but Emma could see them now. They were perched all over the blackberry leaves, tiny froglets, green as emeralds and golden bronze, like jewelry scattered between the white flowers and the black and red berries. Emma cupped her hands and drank the clear water. When she had drunk all she wanted, she picked blackberries and ate them hungrily. The frogs hopped away from her hands to leaves farther away, but didn't seem to mind that she was there otherwise. Now that I have water, thought Emma, I'd better make myself a house to live in. So she followed the creek back down to the beach, to where all the old shipwreck debris lay scattered. For the next hour, she dragged planks and sheets of tin and fiberglass to the creek side, propping them up and leaning them together to make a sort of hut for herself. During one trip down to the sea's edge, she she saw lots of little holes in the wet sand, just the shape of keyholes, and here and there a seagull peeking its beak into the sand, poking its beak into the sand as though it was digging for something. She smiled to herself. Emma had lived by the sea before, and she knew what the holes meant. There are clams under those holes, thought Emma, and I can dig some out and eat for dinner. And that was what she did. When she had finished her house, she dug down with her hands as the big waves rolled in and splashed her ankles and caught the big slippery clams that were trying to get away from her by burrowing down deeper into the sand. Soon she had eight of them, like big glassy cobblestones, and she pried them open with a piece of broken boat propeller. The clams were raw, of course, but Emma was very hungry. It's just like eating sushi, she told herself. She ate them all, and they weren't as bad as you would think, but she decided they would have been better if they were cooked. This made her think about fire. She would have to build a fire before night came to keep warm and perhaps to signal any passing ships. Emma knew that people sometimes made fire by rubbing two sticks together. She found the driest sticks she could far up above the tide line and rubbed two of them together for what seemed like hours until her hands were tired and she felt like crying. But she couldn't make fire. At last she threw down the sticks. I won't cry, Emma told herself. I'll look around the shipwreck some more and maybe I can find a can of gasoline. She searched and searched and actually it was a good thing Emma didn't find any gasoline because if she had tried to get a fire going with it, it would probably have exploded. But she found something even better. Lying in a heap of broken plywood and seaweed was a plastic cigarette lighter which had been lying in the sun so long it had faded to white on one side. Emma wondered if it hadn't been ruined by seawater. She held it up close to her face and flicked the wheel. How happy she was to feel a quick burst of heat and hear the tiny hiss. So as the long evening shadows began to stretch over the dunes, Emma made a fire just outside her hut, feeding it carefully at first with dry dune grass and then putting on bigger pieces of driftwood. For a long time she watched the fire as the red sun sank down and the purple night fell. The stars came out and a bright crescent moon hung above the sea and threw a track of silver on the calm water. Emma watched the moon on the water and didn't feel quite so lonely. It was almost as though the moon were a person out there, smiling at her and telling her not to be scared. She watched the sea, hoping to see the lights of ships. She wondered where she would go if a ship did rescue her. I have no place of my own anymore, she thought, but maybe I can make one. After a while, Emma put her head down on her arms and slept, listening to the frogs and the soft boom of the surf. The storm hadn't taken everything she had, after all. It could never take away her brave heart or her cleverness. In the middle of the night, Emma woke up. Her fire had died down to ash and coals, only brightening now and then when the wind swept across the sand, so she was a little cold. She sat up to put a few more sticks on the fire. The moon had vanished into the sea, but there were seven million white stars lining up the sky. Emma tilted tilted back her head and stared up at them in amazement. She had never seen so many stars living in a city or understood that there really is such a thing as starlight. They lit the dunes with blueness under the night and reflected like points of fire on the black night ocean. Straight above her, the Milky Way trailed across the sky. To the west, it went down to the horizon as though it were smoke from a ship's smokestack. To the east, it went all the way down to the top of the high dune. Right where it met the top of the dune, it looked strangely cloudy. Emma saw two stars close together in the cloud, as though they were a pair of eyes looking down at her. That's funny, she said to herself. That cloud looks almost like a person standing there. But when the two stars seemed to blink, and when the cloudy person began to float down the dune toward her, Emma needed all her bravery not to jump up and run away. Instead, she reached out and took hold of the biggest stick from the fire and held up its burning end defiantly. She didn't shout. Instead, she just watched the person come nearer and nearer. The closer it came, the more it began to take on solidness. Emma glimpsed bright brass buttons and gold braid on a white uniform and very shiny polished black shoes. A white cap floated on the cloudy head with a gold badge winking in the firelight. Gradually, the rest of the figure took shape until only the face and hands were a little transparent. The ghost of a young man in the uniform of a bellboy stood just at the edge of her fire, looking at her with a wistful expression. Ahem, he said. He had a nice voice. Um, I don't suppose you have any bags I could carry for you? Do you, miss? I'm afraid I don't no, said Emma, who, in addition to being brave and clever, was also extremely polite. Any letters I could take to the post office for you? Any shoes you'd like polished? Said the ghost, hopefully. I'm sorry. No, said Emma. I lost my shoes when I was blown here by a storm. The ghost flinched at the word storm, and he wrung his hands. For one awful moment, Emma thought he might emit a a ghastly scream and shoot upward through the air, the way that ghosts do in horror movies sometimes. Instead, he coughed and stood straight, flicking a bit of sand from the front of his tunic. "'I'm sorry to hear that, miss,' he said. "'Very unfortunate thing to happen. "'Yes, indeed. "'What about some room service? "'Is there anything I can do for you at all?' He seemed so desperate to please that Emma felt that she had to say something, so she said, "'Well, I'm a little thirsty. "'Could you get me a drink of water?' "'Right away, miss.' The ghost smiled radiantly and saluted then he appeared to be thinking and his smile faded a bit of course i don't know where any glasses are or the water pitcher anymore you could bring me water in a clam said emma she picked up one of the shells she had saved from her dinner and offered it to the ghost there's a creek right over there the ghost took the shell from her she was pleased to see that it didn't fall through his transparent hand and floated over to the creek, where he filled the shell and came back at once. "Happy to oblige, Miss," he said, offering her the shell. Emma took it from him. "Thank you," she said. She thought about the time she had stayed in a hotel and said, apologetically, "I'm sorry I don't have any money or I'd give you a nice tip." "Oh, that's not necessary, Miss," said the ghost, saluting once more. "Service is its own reward. That's my motto." He watched her, beaming with pleasure as she drank. Emma set down the shell. He didn't go away. And she wondered how to ask him what he was doing there without seeming bad-mannered. It must be very interesting being a bellboy, she said at last. Bell captain, he said proudly. Bell captain Winston Oliver Cortland at your service, miss. And whom do I have the pleasure of serving, miss? I'm Emma Rose, she said. "'Delighted, Miss Emma,' Winston replied. "'Can I do anything else for you?' "'You could sit down by the fire,' Emma suggested. "'Would you like to tell me about yourself?' "'It was the least rude way she could think of "'to ask him who he was and what he was doing there "'so far from anywhere in the middle of the night.' "'Certainly, Miss Emma,' Winston sat in midair "'as though he were perching on the edge of a chair "'and cleared his throat. "'Though I'm afraid there's not much to tell about me,' I was an orphan, you see, left in a peach crate on the front step of the Courtland Boys' Home. As soon as I was old enough to earn my keep, I was put to work shining shoes. Did you run away, said Emma? The ghost looked shocked. Why no, Miss Emma, I wouldn't have been so ungrateful as that. Not when the kind people of the Boys' Home Board of Directors had given me a roof over my head and the clothes on my back. I wanted to make them proud of me. <coughs> I became the best shoeshine boy they had ever seen. And so I got promoted, you see, to one of the really nice shoeshine stalls in the grand hotel in town. What a swell place that was, gold lettering on the door and everything. Emma thought his story was rather sad, but she knew it would be impolite to tell him so. And I worked so hard there that they said I was diligent enough to be promoted again, said Winston, smiling dreamily. Perhaps he looked a little more solid just then, because she could see that he had once had big dark blue eyes and a handsome face. What does diligent mean? asked Emma. Why, it, it means being careful and thorough and, well, always doing your very best to please, said Winston. Taking extra pains to do your job right, By gosh. So I became a bellboy with a blue cap and a nickel-plated badge. And I was such a hard-working bellboy, in no time at all I got transferred to the Empire Hotel in the city. That was an even grander place, stained-glass windows in the lobby and all. I got to wear a red cap then with a silver-plated badge. And while I was working there, a great man came to stay at the hotel. His name was Masterman Marquis de Lafayette Wenlock V. He was a brilliant inventor and rich as a king. Came from a fine old family. I ran errands for him all summer, just as diligent as I could be, and when the day came to pack his bags, he asked me if I'd like to come out here and work for him. <coughs> Did you say yes? asked Emma. Did I? Why, I just about jumped for joy. You see, he'd been busy all summer drawing up plans for a great new hotel he was going to build out here on the coast. It was going to be positively the most spectacular place ever constructed, a marvel of design with everything up to date and first rate. The Ritz, the Savoy, the Waldorf Astoria. Oh, the Grand Wenlock would have beaten them all hollow. Would have, asked Emma. Didn't he build it after all? Winston didn't answer for a moment. He faded back to transparency, sitting there in midair. His brass buttons lost a little of their gleam. At last, a tear ran down his cheek, glittering like stardust. Oh, he built it all right, said Winston and sighed heavily. Winston, the ghostly bell captain, wiped away a tear and spoke in a firm voice. I may as well tell you the whole truth about Masterman Marquis de Lafayette Wenlock V, he said. He was rich as a king, and he did come from an old family, but the fact was his family had a sort of an unsavory reputation. They had a castle and some lands in Europe, but nobody knew where they got their money. I heard that one of the Wenlocks had been a royal astrologer to some king over there, and another one worked as an alchemist for some fellow named Prince Rudolph. But Mr. Wenlock, he was just as nice a gentleman as you could hope to work for. Nothing stuck up about him at all. even if he did look sort of sinister with that pointed beard and those black eyes of his. And there did used to be some mighty strange characters who came to those parties he threw. He said they were his investors. It wasn't my place to have opinions about them, of course. I just handed around the trays of those funny green cocktails they like to drink and served them those funny black hors d'oeuvres they like to eat. And Winston, I said to myself, these folks are as far above you as the moon, so just you keep your lip buttoned. So what happened? Emma asked. Winston sighed again. Mr. Wenlock had decided to build a hotel out here in the dunes, he said. People told him he was crazy to build a hotel on the edge of nowhere, in a place no roads led to, miles and miles away from shops or railroad lines. But he told them that people would find ways to get here. In the meantime, he'd build a steamer pier and bring everything in by steamship. Emma remembered the double line of pier piling she'd seen down on the sand at low tide. Oh, but that must have been a long time ago. The pier's all worn away now. "'It's been more than a hundred years, Miss Emma,' said Winston mournfully. Emma shivered at such a spooky thought and added a few more sticks to the fire. Anyway, Mr. Wenlock wasn't crazy. He knew how to figure the angles. "'Winston,' he said to me, "'what's the worst thing about a holiday by the sea?' Well, I'd never had a holiday by the sea, but it seemed to me there wouldn't be anything bad in one at all, and I told him so. Wrong, he said to me. The worst thing about a holiday by the sea is it's never long enough. The days and the weeks slip by too fast, and before you know it, you're back on the train going home to the sad, dull, grimy old world. But what if you took your holiday at a hotel where time could be stretched out? See, Mr. Wenlock had invented a way to slow down time. I wasn't nearly smart enough to understand everything he told me, but near as I can recollect, he had a machine that would sort of project a bubble of slowed-down time around things. He called it a temporal delay field. He designed his hotel so that you could stay there for weeks or months or even years, as long as you pleased. But when you left, only a weekend would have passed in the outside world. What a good idea, said Emma, remembering how fast summer vacations fled by. But wouldn't it have gotten boring staying in one hotel for months and months? Not this hotel, said Winston proudly. It was immense. You should have seen the blueprints. There would have been ever so much for a guest to do. Glassed-in gardens where you could play croquet, and a club for the gentlemen, and a theater, and a library, and three big bathing pools, and heaps more. "'But what would people have lived on all that time?' Emma asked. "'Why, there was a pantry with ten years' worth of canned food,' said Winston, "'and a wine cellar and a preserved cellar and a brand-new electrical ice house "'to keep things frozen. "'And everything was powered by Mr. Wenlock's wonderful invention.' "'What was that?' Emma inquired. Winston leaned forward in the air, looking very serious. "'It was a new kind of engine, specially patented,' It was the first and only one of its kind in the world. It could run on anything. Sand, sunlight, seawater. Now that I come to think of it, I'll bet that's why Mr. Winlock decided to build his hotel here. Plenty of everything he needed. If only he'd known. Suddenly, Winston looked as though he were going to cry. He faded again, and to keep him with her, Emma asked quickly, And this engine made time slow down? Yes, said Winston, growing a bit more solid. It ran the electricity, too, and ran all the pumps and the condenser that filled the water cisterns. For the engine produced, the purest distilled water when it ran, instead of smoke or ash. Mr. Wenlock had it all piped into tanks for the hotel's use. That was one of the things advertised on the brochures. Absolutely clean, drinking water. I couldn't begin to tell you how it all worked, but it did. It was installed before the hotel was even finished. Mr. Wenlock set himself an opening date, March 22nd, just at the very beginning of the season. He booked all the rooms months in advance to the very best people, and the builders worked around the clock to get the Grand Wenlock finished in time. All the furnishings went in, the pantry was stocked with the most expensive delicacies, and all those rich people from back east and Europe sent their trunks on ahead to be ready when they arrived by steamer. And I was made bell captain and given a white cap and a gold-plated badge. But no sooner had the last carpenter hammered in the last nail and the last painter put on the last piece of gold leaf than an awful catastrophe happened. Winston did begin to cry now, and transparent tears rolled down his transparent cheeks. He gulped back a sob. What was it? Emma hoped he wouldn't go, get so upset that he'd vanished completely. Please tell me. It was the storm of the equinox, said Winston in a broken voice. The fiercest and most terrible storm of the year. Nobody had ever built anything here in the dunes before, so nobody knew what could happen. It came out of a clear, starry sky. One minute, everything was calm, and then it was like an explosion. Emma nodded. She knew all about storms. The wind rose with a shriek that made your hair stand on end, said Winston. It beat the sea flat so it looked like dented tin. It tore into the dunes and sent up columns of sand a half mile high, and in an instant you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. The moon disappeared. There was nothing outside the windows but flying sand. I ran down to the big front lobby where all the rest of the staff were huddled together. We were the only ones there, you see, because the first guests weren't going to arrive until the next morning. That was where we were when we felt the first shudder and heard the first awful creak. What was it, Emma demanded. Winston drew out a transparent handkerchief and mopped his streaming eyes. The storm had begun to drive sand out from under the foundation of the hotel, he said, and blew his nose. The whole place was tilting. At the same time, sand was being driven over the hotel, so it was being buried. Mr. Wenlock came running down the stairs from his grand suite, and he used some pretty bad language I don't mind telling you. He shouted for us all to get out, to get to the band pavilion on the steamer pier, and he led the way himself. Everyone, ra- everyone ran away through those big double doors, except me. Why didn't you go too? Because I thought I ought to stay at my post, said Winston. I was the bell captain, after all. I hadn't got where I was in life by shirking my duty. And, oh, if you'd seen the Grand Wenlock, you'd know why I stayed. I loved her from her parquet floors to her coffered ceilings trimmed in gold. She was the finest hotel in the whole world. She was my home. My first real home. But fate had other ideas. The, the wind got so loud the crystal pendants on the lamp shook and then suddenly the floor pitched from beneath my feet as the hotel went up on end. I went sliding all the way down the marble floor of the lobby and was catapulted through the front doors into the storm. I scrambled to my feet and turned around in time to see the entire hotel sinking like a ship under the waves of sand, disappearing before my eyes. The last sight I saw of her was her sign, all those hundreds of little electric bulbs spelling out the grand wenlock, still shining away through the darkness as the dunes engulfed her. I shouted and I tried to dive after her. I think I intended to try to dig her out, but the sand blew so fiercely I couldn't see and then I couldn't breathe and... I guess I got buried too. And that's where I'm breaking with the lamentable history of Winston the bellboy. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Thanks, Kate, that was wonderful. Very nice. Thank you.